verses. Now I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4 touches on that theme of justice as we work our way through a series looking at the thought life of disciples. The thought life of Christian disciples, basically, how are we to think? What are some safeguards for us? What does the Bible have to say about how we approach, really, our worldview? And there is so much that could be said, but as we work through, and I mentioned last week, as we work through a list provided in Philippians 4, this is not meant to be exhaustive. It's illustrative. It gives you some idea of key ideas so that you might return back to them. And this evening, we focus especially on the third term in the list. Let's give our attention to the word then, beginning at verse 8 of Philippians 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's ask his special blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to consider one of the weightiest of concepts in all of the word and in all of reality, namely justice and righteousness. We ask this evening that you would guide us, help us to give due attention to the word, guard us from error, strengthen us for our place in this world, grant us humility to receive whatever you say, grant us shrewdness to set aside whatever does not agree with you. For we ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. The term that we deal with tonight, the term translated in the English Standard Version as just, has to do, it touches on issues of the absolute greatest moment in all times, and issues which have come again really to the fore in our time. Maybe 15 years ago, you didn't hear the word justice nearly so much as you do now. And especially, I want to address those who are between the ages of, say, 10 and 20, or 10 and 25. The world that you are growing up into is going to be, will continue to have major discussions and at times divisions over how we understand what justice is. As I prepared for this sermon, I found myself more and more struggling, thinking which aspects of this to address and which to just leave aside. And ultimately, I decided not to try to cram it all into one sermon. I see heads nodding in approval, understandably. And so rather this evening, we're going to focus on the meaning and the nature of the word in our text. The meaning and the nature of it. What is it talking about in the more fundamental way? And then next week, Lord willing, the plan will be to look at specific characteristics of justice, especially as they arise in the lives of some of the people in the Bible. You remember the Bible explicitly says that certain people were just. You think of Joseph married to Jesus' mother Mary. 
It says he was a just man. And what constitutes that justice? Describes Job as being a just man. It's one thing to talk in the abstract, and we'll have to do some of that tonight to try to lay a foundation. It's a different thing to see it lived out. And remember, our passage is all about the practice part. We are meditating in order to imitate. That's verse 9. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. We practice these things as people who, to begin with, have been justified through faith. And so as we think about this justice we're called to, it has to come out. The practice has to flow out of a sense. You are reconciled with God through faith in Christ alone. Otherwise, everything I'm about to say will not fit for you. But understanding that you are justified, it doesn't end there. There is, as Romans 1 says, an obedience of faith. And he writes the book of Romans to lay out what that is. What is this obedience that arises out of the justified spirit? And so the Spirit tonight calls you to meditate upon the nature and the grounds of justice, especially in order that you might beware counterfeits and hold fast to what is good. Now, as we consider this idea tonight, we're going to do so under two main headings. I'll announce each of them as we come to them. Look at me again at verse 8. Whatever is just, think on such things. A simple enough statement, but you can't begin to think on whatever is just if you lack a clear understanding of what is just. What is he referring to here? And I want to speak especially to some of the younger ones here. Not purely because you you don't know any better, but because you are formable. As we get older, it becomes harder to change our thoughts because we've got so many of them connected together. It is so important while you're young to do some of your hard thinking. It's Kind of like investing, though I don't imagine you know so much of that now, learn that too. That if you put a little bit in now, it will be worth more later than if you did that at an older age. And the same goes for our understanding of the Christian faith. Now, what is Paul referring to here by this term? The term used in our text, the original Greek term, it had a usage in the Greco-Roman world. And like our words, it didn't have just one use, but Depending on the context, we could translate it as upright, righteous, fair, just. Now, the Greek language had specific words for righteousness and justice, but this particular term could refer to both. And so the context would matter, but basically it means this, to be in accord with high moral standards. To be in accord with high moral standards or social norms Things that lead to a well-ordered society. Things that lead to flourishing relationships, to prosperity of different kinds. That's the general idea as it existed in the world at that time. But we have to remember when the apostles and the writers of the New Testament take words, they are not simply drawing from the Greco-Roman world. In fact, our first thought should be they are drawing from their Old Testament past their understanding of that treasury already handed over to them in the Old Testament. And so we have to ask, how is it understood there? And basically, when the apostles, disciples, and Jesus himself use this same term, they are speaking about what stands in contrast to evil. They're talking about being and doing the good. Jesus, for instance, says, I came not for the righteous. It's the same term here. 
translated just. I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. He himself is called multiple times in the New Testament, the righteous one. And it's the same term, the just one. And so it's that which is morally good in contrast to that which is evil. Now, notably, the Old Testament often pairs two different words when it's driving at these ideas. It'll take two distinct terms, and the English Bible will translate them as righteousness and justice. This matters because the ideas are somewhat distinct. They overlap, but they're distinct. In fact, they're paired this way over three dozen times in the Old Testament. For example, Genesis 18, 19, God says, I have chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. That in itself could merit an entire sermon. This idea that a man who is reconciled to God by faith alone, who received a covenant sign, circumcision, as a seal of righteousness through faith alone, not works, yet had a duty before God to command his family and his employees, it says his servants, his household, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And so these are things that we're called to do out of faith as the community of the Lord. Psalm 33, verse 3 and 4 says, The word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness, He loves righteousness and justice. He loves righteousness and justice. So what is the distinction? I confess that if you look through the passages where these occur, there is an overlapping meaning. But most simply, I would say this. Righteousness focuses especially, it's characterized by a love of and a conformity to that which is good and true and beautiful. Which, in its fullest sense, is God. It is to live and to be in accord with God. Righteousness is more general in that sense, but you can imagine, I want you to imagine something here. Somebody goes to sea and they have a plan. They're going to try to cross an ocean in a boat by themselves. And while they do that, they get blown off by a storm. Plans don't go rightly instead of ending up on some you know, a coastal town in England, they end up on some deserted island where they spend the rest of their life. In that situation, the person who is by him or herself can still be righteous. They are righteous if they love that which is good and true and beautiful, if they honor the Lord, if they desire what is good. But it becomes harder to speak of justice by oneself. Justice, more often than not, is used in terms of a communal outworking of righteousness. It's how righteousness comes to relate with all others. Now, of course, God is personal, Father, Son, Spirit. So there is justice even between the person on the island and the Lord, because we have to render to God what is due. But the word justice, when you see it in the Bible, and if you, especially if you read the Old Testament, you're going to see that word hundreds of times. It has to do especially with the communal outworkings of righteousness, how the community or how individuals treat one another, especially on behalf of those who have been wronged. Let me give you some examples. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 19. 
The people of Israel were gathered together and they were compelled to respond to what was being said as God renewed his covenant with them. Deuteronomy 27, 19. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. And the people shall say, Amen. So God pronounces his judgment upon those who would create two different standards of justice, one for the well-off citizens or the citizens with whole families or simply citizens, and then those who are passing through to receive an unfair treatment. Or Psalm 72. In fact, I invite you to look with me at Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is a prayer for the king of Israel, but it's also a foreshadowing of Christ's reign because that's the function of the kings in the Old Covenant. Psalm 72, beginning at verse 1. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. In what sense is the king to be given this justice? You could understand it as perhaps that he was wronged and he wants to be treated right. I'm more inclined to understand this as him receiving the ability to administer these things on behalf of the people. Because it goes on and says, May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Throughout the Bible, you have instances of poetry, and especially Old Testament poetry often uses a device. It's not the only device that it uses, but it uses a poetic device called parallelism, where you have two related ideas. Instead of rhyming sounds, they rhyme ideas. The ideas have some relationship, and so they get paired together. And in this instance of Psalm 72, you have it going back and forth between righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice. Verse 3 focuses on righteousness and mentions righteousness. Verse 4, rather than expressing the word justice, it depicts justice. Again, hear it. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. If this is what the king was called to do, then in a greater way, this is what Christ shall do. And if this is what Christ does, then this is what we long to see in the world in the way that God desires it. Whatever Christ would do, we want. Now, as we consider these things, I want to lay before you what I think is the most important fact the most important principle when it comes to considering whatever is just. If there's nothing else you take away tonight, though I hope you do take other things, it is this. It is that justice as we understand it means acknowledging that God is the summit, the source, and the sovereign power over all understandings of justice and righteousness. On the one hand, that should go without saying, right? It should go without saying, God decides. And yet, it is increasingly the case in the world, and has been for hundreds of years 
that people do not think in that way. And even people who would acknowledge that on paper practically slip into a mode of living that is atheistic in habit. They don't think, how does God look upon this thought, this choice, this way of living? They forget that he is the righteous standard. I want you to appreciate, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, especially kids, you need to understand that the world was not always the way it is right now. And the way it is right now, it probably will not always be like. That's just how the world goes. But for hundreds and hundreds of years, pretty much all Western society acknowledged that there is an objective, real standard of righteousness, of justice. And it is God, it stands outside of creation and imposes upon us Psalm 89, verse 14. Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. They cannot be stripped away from the Lord, nor can he do wrong. Job 34, verse 12. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. All of our ideas, our concepts of justice, must be anchored to the Lord, to who he is. But then you have to go one step further. You and I, we are human beings. Human beings are, in the first place, creatures. As creatures, we are called to submit to the creator, just as much as the angels or anything else that has ever been made. We don't have a right to form our own idea of what is right. But then even beyond being merely creatures, we are image bearers. One of the high privileges that you have that, what else? The furniture around us, the pets we have at home do not have, is to be created to bear the image and the likeness of God. It doesn't mean physically looking like him. God is a spirit. But it means that we have the blessed, the high privilege of acting out the way that God loves the way that God regards what is good and true and beautiful. And because we are creatures and image bearers, we do not have, no individual has, no society has the right to form for themselves a judgment about justice. It all must be graded according to the Lord. Jesus himself gets at this in John 5, verse 30, when he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Here speaking as he is not only true God, but true man, as a true human being, he did not come like some guru or teacher to come up with his own ideas. I speak not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And therefore, verse 30, my judgment is just. If that's the standard governing Jesus Christ, that must be the standard that governs us. If you want to judge justly, then you must seek to bring your estimation of what is right into conformity with the word, which requires that you know the word, as well as that you seek to have a heart which can submit to it. Another passage, Deuteronomy chapter 32, it's a passage called the Song of Moses, And at the beginning of the Song of Moses, he is describing 
Israel in contrast to the other nations, and how, like the other nations, Israel, everybody, was alienated from God. But God, in mercy, drew Israel to himself. Hear how he describes the nations at large. Deuteronomy 32, verse 3 and following. I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. But now Moses turns and he looks at the world apart from the knowledge of the Lord. And he says, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked, a twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? And here is God's judgment that human beings at the beginning, when you look at Adam and Eve, what, what is the sin among other things? It was a judgment upon God's right to judge to form the standard of what was acceptable and what was not acceptable. And so if we think anything about whatever is just, it must be whatever accords with the nature and the will of God. That's the simple part of it. And what I would hope any child could walk out saying, whatever is just is whatever God approves of. Whatever is just is whatever God approves of. Obviously, it can be built out in a much bigger way. That brings us then to our second and what will be our final, really our conclusion, our final idea here. What I'm hoping to do in the minutes that we have left is simply to make some pastoral observations and a few exhortations. Some pastoral observations and exhortations that are arising out of something of the shift that has been taking place for many years, but which seems, in my judgment, to have accelerated significantly in the past 10, a shift in how people think about justice, what they regard as just. This shift, to use the words of another pastor and writer, is opening up fault lines. And people find themselves on either side, sometimes straddling both sides. And those fault lines are based on where you stand in relation to certain ideas. I don't want to lose you. Because this affects everyone. We live in a certain culture. We cannot pretend by hiding in a bubble and knowing predominantly Christians, we can't pretend that we're not affected, that our families are not affected, that we don't have a witness to give in the world. And so we do need to be prepared to recognize and as appropriate to criticize, to hold everything up to the word. The ideas that I'm speaking about are traceable to a social, or to a particular wing of the social sciences as well as legal theory. And I don't claim for a moment to know everything about either, or hardly anything in one sense. Though I am not ignorant, and I've tried, I think it's partly the duty of, of being a pastor and partly of being an understanding person, I've tried to read from the voices of those who hold these views, not simply secondarily from Christians critiquing certain views. But these ideas, they do largely stem not from within the church, but from outside of the church. I want to be clear that it is not impossible for unbelievers to have moral insights. And I would never tell you, you cannot read or should never read non-Christians. 
in the things that they say. God is so gracious, he is so good, that he does pour out a tremendous amount of understanding to unbelievers as well. And we should be willing and humble to receive as from the Lord that which comes through the unbeliever. Nor am I saying that we should utterly neglect these things, but on the other hand, hear the words of Proverbs 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Sometimes things seem so true, you would stake your life on it, and yet it can be wrong. This is why we have to come back again and again, what does scripture say? Otherwise, who decides, and even that person over there who's so convinced and now they've gained notoriety, popularity, book deals, But where did they get that information? And why do we suddenly trust them? What is their authority? And I want to speak especially to some of you younger ones here. I'm in it with you. I'm affected. I am influenced by the currents around us, especially as you come to the point where you begin using a phone and you're on the internet. Some of you almost constantly, I'm aware. Sometimes things become popular Not because they are true, but because they contain a kernel of truth, and yet they are so simplistic that many people, millions of people, gobble it up. They're presented simplistically, not with the kind of nuance, not with the real difficulty that is wrestling with issues of justice. It is hard to wrestle with issues of justice. Sometimes things are presented so simplistically, and yet there's a kernel of truth in it. And at the same time, it is able to match up with some of the prejudices or some of the fleshly desires of a time. And so people jump onto it, and then you think, with a certain amount of humility, there must be a lot of truth to it, because suddenly everybody's saying that's true. What does the book of Proverbs say? Do not run with a crowd to do evil. The way is narrow. And I want to present to you, again, my point is not to say that there is no truth in any of the extra-biblical and non-Christian approaches to ethics, to justice. It is to say that if you will tread in those waters, you had better be acting cautiously. Worldview is consumed a bite at a time. People think that they are believing one thing, and then over time, you find out that these pieces that seem disconnected are connected, and they've become so attached to certain ideas that they have to take other, more obviously evil ideas with them. My first exhortation is this. As you consider justice and righteousness, as you consider justice and righteousness, be aware of the spirit in which these claims are being presented. Be aware of the spirit in which these claims are being presented. I say that because I myself have encountered, whether in writing or in person, Christians and non-Christians who are speaking as if recently discovered insights about justice are now essential. And apart from a Proving and enacting and spreading those ideas, you cannot possibly do true justice. These new ideas that were born yesterday, and their mother was by and large an academia that was not Christian, somehow are viewed even by many pastors who become, I've listened to some of these sermons, I'm trying to be open. 
and yet they're breathless in their praise. And, you know, until I read that, I had never even known what justice was. Here's the problem with that. What this does is, besides being a form of coercion, where we're not allowed to think reasonably, to be persuaded, and we're simply going to be canceled if we don't immediately approve of the new justice, there's a deeper problem here, is that it goes against, it runs against a core tenet of our faith. And it's that scripture is sufficient. It doesn't say everything that could be said on any issue, but Scripture says what is essential for anything related to faith and godliness. And for that reason, if somebody speaks to you as if the Bible simply does not provide the tools to be just, not that there aren't books that can help us understand what it says, but if it is lacking, that person is not to be trusted on that issue. They have forfeited their right to be, not because they have nothing true to say, but aren't Do we have to depend upon that? Do we not have other more reliable sources, often that we don't bother to read because they're old? It's not like Christianity is just, you know, waking up to the question of justice. God's people have been crying out to it for thousands of years and thinking hard because they were in the boiler. They were the minority. They were oppressed. They come from every part of the world. And wherever they are, true Christians are a small group. And so to speak as if they have no idea about justice until just yesterday, it's a slight upon the word. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's the same word in our passage, Philippians 4, whatever is just. For training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, Equipped for every good work. Not just some. The Bible is not just part of the equation. Every good work, whatever God would call you to do in society individually or corporately, the principles are here. Proverbs 28 verse 5, on the other hand, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it Completely. Those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Now, why would it say that evil men do not understand justice? It's not just that they're bad. Every uh, person who's not a Christian is equally bad. That's not true. Some of them are exemplary in aspects of their morality. But there's a sense in which the person who does not know the Lord and does not seek the Lord cannot understand justice rightly. Romans chapter 3, verse 26, it's so short that I don't ask you to turn there, but I do appeal to you to give attention to it. Romans 3, 26 asks what may be the crucial question concerning justice in all of the Bible. I wonder if you know what it is. The crucial question. Every child here, please, I beg of you, if you memorize one thing this week, and inevitably you're so young, you memorize all kinds of things every week. Memorize this, this question. How can God be both just and the justifier of sinners? To be just, as we've seen, is to be right, to be good. To be a justifier is to declare someone else right and good. To be just is to render to each what is due to them. 
When we think of our duty as human beings, Jesus said the second great commandment is to what? Love your neighbor as yourself. If we stopped just there, no one of us would be able to lay a claim that we have been just. But what was the first and the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Justice begins with what God deserves. Augustine, the great North African theologian, perhaps outside of the New Testament writers themselves, the one that we are as a tradition most indebted to, this North African theologian wrote a book called The City of God. And in that book, he asked this question. How can you say that it is unjust for someone to take an estate away from a person who has bought it and then give it to someone else? We'd all recognize that's unjust. You know, to put it on a child's level, let's say, you know, when I was a kid, for a little while, my grandmother paid me in dimes, sometimes quarters, for minding my manners. It took me a long time to save up enough money to buy a Walkman, which at that, that's a device that played music off of tapes. And I worked a long time, or rather I should say I was periodically polite. And eventually I had that. Now imagine on the very day after taking, you know, a year of begrudgingly saying thank you, getting this device and I'm just about to put the earphones on and listen to some music, when my sister comes over, takes it out of my hands, and goes and gives it to one of her friends. Oh, the injustice! We would recognize that's intuitive. The Lord has built it into everyone who has not suppressed their conscience on that matter. And Augustine says there, How can we say that is unjust and at the same time say that God is not to be given his due worship? If one does not serve God, there can be no true justice. And that's the irony of so much of contemporary justice movements. They leave God out of the question. They leave him out of the question. And you can be a person who is so committed to fighting for the oppressed. And there's something beautiful in that. Something that we've already seen is reflective of Christ. And yet you can perish and go to hell because in the end, you are doing it for some purpose of idolatry. To have your own righteousness. To bring about a kingdom on this earth through your own efforts. And not to know the Lord. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That is, if God judged you according to the purity of his eyes, every one of us would be like stubble when the fire hits. No one of us can claim to be good. And yet you do have people with To use a big word, a Manichaean outlook. There are only good and evil in the world. And these even non-Christians who view themselves as the good and those other people are the bad. It's not so simple. There are the justified in Jesus Christ who by the Holy Spirit are growing in grace. And there is the world who through a whole manner 
of self-deceit and delusion persuade themselves they are good or seek a way of open evil. The third and final exhortation, I invite you to turn and look at one passage and then we'll pray. Titus chapter 3. One of the things that we do when we are interviewing people who desire to make profession of faith, especially youth, is sometimes we ask them what their favorite Bible verse is. And it's been wonderful, almost always they do know off the tip of their tongue without having asked them to prepare for that. If I were asked, my favorite passage in the New Testament is probably this one. Titus 3, verses 4 and following. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. It's the same term again. Not by just works, not by our justice, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. What? It's the knowledge that you are justified apart from works that leads us to devote ourselves to good works. Because the person who has been renewed by the Holy Spirit has a true spiritual yearning to be conformed to the justice of the righteous God. Only he can do that in us, but he certainly shall do it in us as we seek it. Let's seek it even now in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you for an opportunity to consider your word and to consider the justice, ultimately, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that in glory we shall be like him, that no more will we be torn in different directions by our fleshly desires to deprive others, to deprive you of their rightful due. We ask, Lord, that you would please cause us to more and more love justice and righteousness. Give us insight and understanding. Protect us from error. Grow us in every way that we might serve you in every way. And bless your people and this world in every way. For in Jesus' name, God's people pray. Amen.